0: You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Hello, and welcome to the Horny Housewife Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan. Welcome back. But if you're new, it's the couple's locker room. We're talking all things sex, the reality of sex and marriage, the good, the bad, the fucking ugly, the juicy, the relatable, and we're giggling and shit about it. And we're also learning some stuff. In fact, today you'll be learning about attachment styles and it's not boring. It's actually super fucking interesting or I wouldn't upload it. There have been times I have done interviews and they don't see the light of fucking day. And it's get kind of awkward. It's kind of awkward sometimes, but I won't do that to y'all. I won't do that to y'all. If I wouldn't want to hear it, then why the fuck am I going to ask y'all to listen to it? But no, for y'all, this is good shit. Dr. Allison Ash is back. Dr. Allie, she was super informative, knowledgeable, and entertaining last time she was on. And this time, it's we're right to the point. We are talking about one topic, different styles of how we attach or connect or show up. I don't even know the right word in our relationship and how these air quote attachment styles affect our adult relationships. And maybe you'll hear one and be like, holy shit, I am married to that. That is what I am married to. And you'll have a better understanding of him or her. And it can be a game changer, Or maybe you'll find out you're perfect. And in that case, I need you to DM me and tell me I have 20 questions for you on how you became or how you just managed to grow up and be securely attached. Because if there are any of those just from the straight get-go, I'm almost in disbelief. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you will by the end of this. Okay, stay tuned for that. First things first, in this intro, I wanted to bring up something the men have been asking me to ask the women for quite some time now, and that is what kind of porn do women watch? And I got to pull my Instagram listeners, so I guess we can take that into account that they are podcast listeners. So automatically cooler than the average female? (laughs) I don't know. Okay, here we go. Here's some answers. Lesbian, even though I legit would never be a lesbian, but it's hot. I think that is so extremely common. I think as women, there's a lot of us who can really appreciate and find the beauty, the hotness, the eroticism of a woman's body. And I don't know the exact psychology of why straight women love lesbian porn. I feel like if you asked a lesbian that, they would have a different answer than if you asked a straight woman that. <laughs> so I don't know, but I do think that is a very common answer. Another person said 69 missionary back shots. Okay. You know what you're into. Reddit NSFW threads. You would love the Patreon then I feel like I'm reading all these dirty Reddit stories. Okay. Rough fantasy with a dominant submissive roles, sometimes female sub, male dom, or switched. Cum shot complications? No, cum shot compilation, I think. <laughs> Taboo. Hardcore, rough sex, older men. Speaking of compilations, I think they just spelled it wrong. I know what they meant. Duh. Love those. Love those. What an art the person making that video like job well done usually bonnie and alex fingering orgasm real orgasm shaking orgasm basically anything where she comes see for me i like seeing the male the man climax in porn cuz a lot of the times you don't see that i mean you can find it easily but sometimes it just ends and you're like i needed to see i needed to see the end Okay. Threesomes, female, female, male, a meteor, male, female, female, or female, male, male. Usually search female friendly. I like sinful raw. Another person said Belisa. I think I'm pronouncing that wrong. Belessa. It's porn made for women specifically, not sponsored. That was just someone's answer. I'm bi and I only watch lesbian or made for women, made for women, bondage related, ethical lesbian core, sometimes FMF threesomes, but almost entirely audio. Interesting. Audio porn and not like... The Patreon where I'm reading erotica, like audio porn, like hearing someone fuck like as if they were in the next stream. Interesting. Another person wrote, I love animation porn, the over the top body parts, and I don't get intimidated because it's a cartoon. I am not into animation at all for some reason. Like it just does nothing for me. Solo male scissor, hot couples, girls scissoring, but I'm not bi or lesbian. I have no idea why I like it. See? again opposite sex me and my wife watch black no porn just read dirty books bbd with caucasian women i wished she watched porn hey we didn't ask you stepmom it's my dirty secret my wife loves anything with natural big boobs in it none. I've never watched. I mean, I've seen bits here and there, but I didn't like curious. Oh my gosh, we are stopping and we are focusing on this. I am sure I could go on and on. So I don't want to do that. But I will say if something makes you feel bad, I think it's fair to look at where it comes from. And I know there's a whole world out there and I think everyone has their preferences and everyone has like, I guess their little morale meter of what they feel okay, indulging in or watching whatever. And I think people that have like really extreme or inclinations to watch really extreme things, if they were really self-reflecting, they would see where it tied back to maybe previous trauma or sexual trauma or something else, their need for whatever. And I guess it is what it is, right? It doesn't mean that's bad. I'm just saying where it origins, but just the fact that you said curious makes me feel like you might just think, as a whole, watching porn is wrong. So I think there could be some vanilla porn <laughs> that you might super enjoy. And there are. Websites that make and create ethical porn specifically for women that are like wanting to be there and are comfortable in their bodies. But again, I don't know where your uh, icky feeling comes from, but something to look at since you're curious where does the ick origin? Do you still remain in that belief? And if you don't, like, how can you evolve past that limiting belief? Did any of that make sense? Okay, let's move on. The last thing girls mentioned in this little question poll thing was smut books. A lot of them are into reading. And y'all will like the Patreon, I bet. It's not reading. It's listening. But it's in the format. Like, it was a written format. So it's fun. It's fun. That link is in the episode notes as well. it's time for listener questions Okay, I can't wait till I'm cool enough and big enough and someone gives a fuck to like come in and be like you know what I'm gonna intervene and really just take this show to the next level and give me some like cool like music weaved into my Tourette's outburst you know okay first question I've been with my boyfriend for eight years and I'm still obsessed with him. He needs to make you your, uh, his wife. Just want to say that he says that I don't come on to him enough and that he would like me to put more effort in. I take that back. I don't even know how old you are, but I don't give a fuck because I think that's a long time. I feel like when I do come on to him, I do it so awkwardly and I make it not sexy. What are some ways that I could come on to him? Okay. As a fellow obsessed wife, even when I hate his fucking guts, which like right now, like I hate him a little more than normal and like, I would still like be a super freak and let him do horrific things to me. It's, it's fucked up. It's a little toxic, (laughs) but yeah, I think that obsession sometimes comes from a little bit of lack of control or, uh, uh. Mystery. I'm. Um, I was about to say emotionally unavailable, but unable to read kind of thing. I. I am seeing little red flags that you're at least not a fiance. I'm just talking girl to girl. I'm not trying to shit on anything, but you deserve a ring, baby girl. Unless you are 15 years old, which you should not be listening to this podcast. And then that means y'all dated when you were like nine. So like if you are under the age of 18, turn it off and just walk away and break up with him because you need to experience more dick in your life than that. And if you are in your 20s and y'all have been together for a while, like if you've been with him since you were 20 and you're 28 now, like he needs to, we need to have a path. We need to have a path because I'm sensing commitment problems. Now you didn't ask me anything about your relationship length commitment, nothing. And I just inserted myself. And for that, I apologize. To answer your question, truthfully, I think what could actually help and give you the confidence to come on to him more is to really be feeling yourself. So... Sometimes I'll get into a rut of wearing sweats every day and being natural, you know, like the natural look is like in right now. And so I'm like, I look trendy, but I forget and I'll remember and then be like, okay, kicking into high gear, Jordy Cakes, that the big baggy trendy look that's going on isn't always sexy to men. So I'll put on some leggings. Yes, I will dress for the male gaze. Shoot me, shoot me. It's actually quite fun. I, I, I like to be objectified at times. I, I crave that for validation. So at least she's self-aware. At least she's self-aware. Anyhow, there's nothing wrong with that. Objectify me. Object, you, want it, you want it too. You want him to be like, holy fuck. God, you're so fucking beautiful. Feels good. Feels good when someone's oodling you. Or even if the vibe you're putting out. Like you feel good about how you look. So you're feeling yourself, maybe you masturbated a couple hours ago. You feel in tune with your body. You've been doing your affirmations. You're doing your self-care. You're meditating. You're in the zone, auto zone. And he can feel when you're vibing high and that in itself is sexy. And then Instead sort of just like you don't have to throw yourself on him. You don't have to like go give him a lap dance and feel awkward as fuck because you just asked for something and now you're trying to immediately give it. I get it. We all get that. I think guys can relate to that too. If their wives are like, come on, step it up. And then they're like, if I do it right now, ten minutes later, she's gonna think it's cause she told me to do it. You know, pause. Every time I bitch about not getting flowers because I should get them way more than I do, okay? Three days later, (laughs) flowers appear. So, I mean, it does work, but it is (laughs) annoying. So men, log it, like set an alarm, like add it to your calendar. And then when the alarm goes off, don't just snooze it. Order the fucking flowers, okay? Or whatever your set alarm is. Back to the topic, back to the topic. I think if you were feeling yourself, feeling good, making sure you're taking care of yourself and, and being cutesy on purpose, let's call it intentional, not desperate, it feels better. Start with some light flirting. Guys, I think you should fast forward 30 seconds so I can just shoot her straight and we don't get anyone's feelings hurt and you don't know our secrets. So maybe the lady should DM me more about this because I have some tips on some good eco stroking maneuvers. That we don't need to let the guys know about. That's for us to know and us to utilize. That's girl talk. We're in the locker room. God damn it! Both of us are here. But yeah, ego strokey is always nice. Having a teaching moment. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Being radiating in your feminine. And he will, whether it's conscious or subconsciously, slip more into that masculine role. And I think organically it could unfold there. You're going to be so irresistible that he's not going to be able to keep his hands off of you. And then you can direct it. If you're like giving out that vibe of like, I want to go to pound town with you and you're being flirty, sweet, touchy, physically affectionate. That's the same thing as touchy. I don't know why I said it twice. And y'all are vibing each other and flirting and being cutesy. Can I stop saying that? Then when he does start, maybe he's initiating, but getting handsy with you, you can be more dominant. You can lead him, take him upstairs. Like once he starts doing that, you just take the lead, take charge, bring him upstairs. Or maybe slowly undress him. Start by giving him a massage while he's watching sports one Monday evening. And then get on your knees. I don't... <laughs> that works. That works. And the most important point of all of this is fuck the awkward feeling. I was trying to like give you some specific techniques or angles you could go in at. I do think you should feel good about yourself and feel confident feel sexy to be sexy. But bite the bullet in the awkwardness because no, you're in your head. He thinks you're fucking amazing. He loves, loves fucking you, making love to you, being with you. And it is a pleasure, a joy for him to see that. And luckily you're together and you're obsessed with them and with him. So you have plenty of time to let this organically come and not make it feel forced, but I do encourage you to push past your discomfort. And I think if you keep doing that, you'll grow. And then I can't say it won't ever feel forced because I think that's just being in a long-term relationship. Sometimes you have to put more infinite intentionality choice in it than other times. That's just how it goes. And it is what it is. And You can sit and pout about it or you can get on board and play the fucking game. So yeah, I hope that answered the question. Moving onward, last but not least, I know that's only two listener questions. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, that was the whole episode was just firing them off one after the next cuz I knew the following week would be an interview and we keep it short for the listener questions. If you are listening and you want to submit one, you can go to my website thehornyhousewifepodcast.com, submit a question truly anonymously if need be, and you can DM me, but I prefer the website, but definitely go follow and I get to every DM at some point. Like I take pride If you say something weird or perverted or you just are like, hey, like, can we chat for a little bit? I no, that's not that's not the point of it, but I am engaged. I post a lot of funny videos, memes. I make reels, keep you in the loop with the podcast, share random thoughts that enter into my brain. And it really is a fun, good place. I promise. They follow for a reason. So at underscore the horny housewife podcast, plus all my discount codes are over there. Merch updates, new launches, information, all the resources you might need, you're going to find over there too. Okay, here we go. Last question. Hi, Jordan. My wife and I have been married for 27 years. I am English and I came from an extremely open environment, especially towards sex, drugs, and pushing the envelope. My wife grew up in a very 1950s American values household. She was extremely prudish towards any form of sex. This included oral, anal, additional partners, and especially anything kinky. Over the years, I have introduced her to one of my fetishes, that of being used sexually by a dominant woman. To that end, she will sit on my face and very occasionally use oversized strap-ons on me. However, she really doesn't seem to be into it. I get the feeling that she is playing along because she knows that it turns me on. I have repeatedly tried to get her to share her fantasies with me, but she insists that she doesn't have any. She has never actually finished a blowjob, and the one time she agreed to try anal sex, she screamed as I got the head of my cock in and jumped off the bed screaming. There ended that. I do not have an especially long porn star cock. I guess it's pretty thick, but I always thought it was a good thing. I have tried to see if she would like an additional man or woman to make her the center of attention, but she shuts it down and won't even discuss it. I know that if I could get her to open up to her own desires and fantasies and perhaps fulfill some or all of them, her passion and desires would grow. Any suggestions? I love her and I love her to use me, but I know that she is holding almost everything back. Please email a response. Feel free to use my question. Just don't use my name. Guess what? I never use anyone's name. If I say someone's name, it's because I made up I made up a name just to be funny because sometimes I want to be like, Peter, 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 fuck you. But no, okay, so sir, 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 sir. I will... Okay, you said you love her and you love her to use you. So it sounds like your wife is incredibly willing and that she loves you and she really wants to be what you need, clearly by her actions. There are lots of women who not only are they going to you know, shut down and they don't feel safe to share or they don't even know how to share or want to share... That's loaded, uh, but there are some women who don't do that and they don't even entertain giving the man what they need. Usually it's just completely shut off. So I'm not saying to just suck it up and accept it, but I think you should definitely redirect some focus onto gratitude and like what is so amazing about your wife and her willingness is huge. There are some women who are never going to have a penis in their butthole. It's never going to happen. They're never going to allow it. Whether half of the world or me tells her she's missing out, she's not going there. So again, sounds like a willing, lovely lady. And I think that if instead of you thinking about it and like, how can I get her to blank you make an intentional effort to understand and learn your wife more and you and that wasn't an insult but in any means i mean it in like a way of if you keep going about it the same way you are and i don't know what that looks like but i cuz all i have to go off of is this this very tiny amount so i don't know you or your wife so forgive me if you feel misunderstood or i'm reading it wrong but uh, you've been married to her 27 years. You're probably like, shut the fuck up. I know my wife. But I can will speak for a woman and say being around someone all the time, like there are some people that see each other twice a week that I guarantee you feel more connected and close than some people who see each other every single day after work and and they're like completely disconnected. So like being physically around someone doesn't necessarily mean you're – close. Like you could come home from work and watch TV every night and like think about like the intimacy you've had if you do that every day for six months or years or however long. You get what I'm saying. Do you understand beyond how she grew up, which is a huge role, why she shuts down with you with sex? Because if she's willing to let you try things like Like, her putting a strap on is pretty damn willing, okay? It is. Like, she seems like a cool lady. She seems like a cool wife. And uh, the anal, I mean... It does hurt. Like you could, there's different positions. If y'all really wanted to try to master anal, you know, you united as a couple, I think you could go about it and figure these things out to have enjoyable anal sex. But there's a possibility your wife doesn't feel safe to share her desires. Like there could be truth to her saying she doesn't have any either. She may feel Asexual for all we know. Like, I think you're gonna have to like deep dive in, understanding like where she's coming from, what is she experiencing, what does her present day look like, what does her day-to-day look like? How do y'all connect? Do you date your wife at all? Like, are you dating her? Do you actively pursue her? Do you know her favorite restaurant, her favorite color, her favorite song? You don't need to know all of her favorite song, but you do need to date your wife. And spoiler alert, if Everything you're doing is for a self-serving motive at the end of the day. It will be no. It will be known. That will be shown. Okay? That didn't mean for that to be a rhyme, but it just was. And maybe I sound like a little bit of a hater, but, and I don't have enough information, but I do think you're onto something with uh, she's not telling you at all. But at the same time, maybe she doesn't feel... Like she has the ability to learn what she likes. And so I think your best bet would be to go to her and express to her a deep desire for understanding her on a deeper level mentally and physically and emotionally and maybe you've been going about sex all wrong with her, and you can't imagine going any longer, not understanding how to bring her real pleasure. And all you know is in your experience, those moments together are so erotic, and however you want to tell her what those mean to you. And the point of that is to say, I want to find that for you, and what does that look like? If that doesn't look like, a kink. Like maybe your kinks look nothing like mine. Maybe you like to feel dominated by a masculine man and she submits and she feels like she can't have that because you want a dominant woman. So maybe she just feels unable or like it's a waste of her breath or whatever belief it is she has for whatever reason, and she can't share that shit with you. So you need to create that safe atmosphere and be vulnerable and do things that might feel uncomfortable if you want some sort of change. Because nothing is going to go differently and you're not going to get anything different from your wife, a different vibe, a different attitude until you come with literally a white flag saying, I I want to learn and not be ignorant to how my wife is feeling, whether you're angry, whether you feel misunderstood, whether you feel disgusted, just say you want to fucking know, shoot her fucking straight, say hurt my feelings, I dare you. Can you do that? Some men would probably hear that and be like, I'm I'm not going to say that. But sometimes I feel like, God, it would enlighten so many people. Okay. I don't even know if that one was helpful, but that was definitely interesting. And I definitely think with a mindset shift, uh, both of you, both would have to have a mindset shift and some uncomfortable conversations and some instead of pointing the fingers, maybe looking inward, that there could be change. But again, I have not been with someone 27 years, so bless up. So I polled y'all, have you heard of attachment styles and relationships? 54% of you said yes, and 46% of you said no. And then I asked what I would consider my air quotes attachment style, anxious, avoidant, secure, or what are you talking about? There's also fearful, but you'll learn more soon. 37% said anxious where my people lie. Okay. And then 26% said secure. Holy shit. Was that men? Was that all men? I'm going to look. 10% said avoidant. I feel like if this was polling everyone, this would not be right, but this makes sense for my listeners. (laughs) And then 26% said, what are you talking about? I am excited. I am so excited. This one's going to be a good one for y'all guys. Dr. Allison Ash is back, a.k.a. Dr. Allie, and I say we just get right on into it. It's time. I am joined once again with Dr. Allison Ash, a.k.a. Dr. Allie, a trauma-informed intimacy coach and educator, also the founder of TurnOn.Love, and she joined me in episode 151 discussing creating authentic intimacy Getting out of a rut and more. Go check it out if you haven't already listened. And welcome again, Dr. Allie. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. I'm excited. I know at the end of our conversation, like towards the end last time, you brought up attachment styles. And I realized that I I've, I've never done an episode solely where this was the topic we discussed. And I think there's plenty to learn about and relate to.
1: Yeah, I think this is such an important topic for folks when they're thinking about not just intimate relationships, but also the ways that we relate with friends and with colleagues and certainly, of course, with our parents because our attachment styles develop when we're little infants and up up to pretty much 18 months in life is when we're really developing our attachment style. Um, So the more that you learn about your attachment style, the more that you can make sense of your childhood and relationship with your parents, as well as the kinds of relationships and partners that are going to serve you well and the work that you can do as an individual and the work that you can do as a couple so that yeah. you can create more nourishing and sustainable relationships.
0: Okay. This is all good stuff. So if someone's listening and they go, but I, what? what's an attachment style? I don't even know what that is, or I don't know which one I am, like stripping it down to the basics for someone who doesn't know what are attachment styles and how can people figure out which one they identify with?
1: Yeah, great question. And of course, a, a pretty big one to answer, but I will mm-hmm. I will try to give the, the highlights here, which is that when we are infants, we all have needs and we're obviously not equipped to meet any of our needs on our own. And so we really rely on our caregivers to be the ones who meet our needs, who are able to attune to what our needs are in the moment, whether we need to eat or whether we need to be soothed because we're distressed or we need to be rocked to sleep, that they can see that we have needs, they can identify what those needs are, and that they will reliably meet those needs. And when our caregivers meet our needs, we feel cared for, we feel safe. And as we get a little older, um, they can also not only be a safe haven for us when we have needs, but they can also encourage our exploration and our autonomy and our independence. And so we can feel this sense of safety where we can go off and explore, but if it gets to be overwhelming or too much, we can run back and they'll envelop us in their love. And that's the foundation for secure attachment styles. Mm -hmm. And when kids receive this kind of parenting, then they grow up and they're equipped to have secure attachments as adults, meaning that they feel comfortable on their own, they have very good self-esteem and sense of self, uh, they believe in the abundance of love, they trust other people, they feel comfortable being emotionally expressive and vulnerable, they have faith that their needs are going to be met by other people, they feel comfortable meeting other people's needs and offering offering them reassurance and closeness. And the majority of our population studies vary a little bit between maybe 50 to 65% of the population is securely attached. And I think one of the- How much? 65? 50 to 65%, depending on the study. Okay. I thought it was going to be less. (laughs) So did I, right? Because I think that- uh, as somebody who s- certainly did not have a secure attachment, we can have what what I'll talk about a little bit later is an earned or a learned secure attachment style, uh, which can happen through a lot of work. Um, but as somebody who spent much much of my life having a very anxious or preoccupied, these are the same terms used interchangeably. Um, attachment style, I kind of felt like everybody
0: must have an Something insecure attachment up. style, right? <laughs> well, what is a secure attached parent look like? Like what does that look like? Because yeah, I'm thinking I think, as a parent perspective and when I was a child, I'm thinking what does that look like?
1: Sure. And I, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that a secure, a, a parent who is securely attached and able to create a secure attachment bond with their child, is present and available 100% of the time. And that's actually not necessary. We're Mm -hmm. talking about good enough, meaning that more often than not, you can consistently respond to your child's needs, that you can attune to them, that you can respond to their needs, and at the same time, that you're not overbearing, that you can encourage their autonomy and independence. What happens in some of the cases, and this is where, if you're familiar with the term intergenerational trauma, this is one of the ways intergenerational trauma can occur is that parents who have insecure attachment styles themselves have Mm -hmm. a harder time parenting and then they can create that kind of attachment dynamic or or challenge in their children and then that gets passed on through the lineage. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pointing at myself too. (laughs)
0: Okay, yeah. And then what if, like, did you have to resolve that? This I'm making this into my own personal therapy session. Did you have to resolve that to heal your own secure attachment style? Did you have to resolve that with your parent? What if someone doesn't have the ability to, you don't have to?
1: Yeah, I certainly wasn't able to. Okay. And, um, and no, you don't have to. Gotcha. What a dream that would be. Um, and uh, it's wonderful when our parents are able to be in the conversation. I have one parent who is incapable of having this conversation with me. I think that her inner critic gets really loud, her shame and guilt gets really loud. She's aware, but she can't dialogue with me about it. And then I have another parent whom can like really acknowledge the shortcomings and can own up to the ways that he wasn't able to parent for me in in, like the most ideal ways And, and own that it's because he didn't receive that when mm-hmm. he was a kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and there's something so healing about that. That doesn't mean that he can go back in time or even necessarily in the present moment, attuned to me in all the ways or meet all the needs in the ways I wish he could, but right. th- that we can be in dialogue around it, that there's ownership, accountability. Not, we can talk about the elephant in the room. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's a gift. It's been
0: healing. True that, true that. Okay, continue on with different attachment styles. I got you Okay.
1: So there are three main insecure attachment styles, Uh, anxious or preoccupied, avoidant or dismissive. Again, these are just the same terms for the same style. And then disorganized, which we might also call fearful avoidant. Okay. The anxious or preoccupied attachment style happens when your caregiver is inconsistent in meeting your needs. Sometimes they meet your needs. sometimes they don't. And remember the good enough rule here. We're not talking about 100% of the time, but just Mm -hmm. more often than not, it's inconsistent. Mm -hmm. And so then what happens for these little ones when they have this inconsistent parenting style is that they get a taste of how good it is Mm -hmm. when your parent meets your needs and it tunes to you, but they can't rely on it. And so then they become very fearful of losing it. And they can get clingy and needy and really anxious about can I trust this? Can I depend upon this? And then, of course, you can really see how that would translate into adult relationships. This is me. this is me. You and me both, sister, right? Like it, yeah. can, it There's can, a lot of us. There really are. There's a and lot. it's so important. And we can talk a lot about how we can move towards a more earned, secure attachment style. But I think one of the most important elements of that is having uh, the self-awareness and mm-hmm. the self-compassion and patience, receiving empathy from other people, being able to identify your emotional experience and your needs and give voice to them and so I think a lot of this is not shaming ourselves for being air quotes needy and um, demanding or unsatiable or whatever else that may be and mm-hmm. just really tending to the little one inside that had absolutely zero control and zero power about the conditions in which they were in. And how do we start to kind of self-parent ourselves Mm -hmm. and and learn how to express the needs Mm -hmm. that we have? So as an anxious attacher, what you really need in partnership is reliability, is consistency, reassurance, affirmations, Mm. presence. attention right and of course I think the other partner needs to be able to have their own boundaries and uh, but to say I get the reassurance that you need and I'm willing to offer it
0: and it's like sometimes those those things they sound like love languages some of them too but really you're like oh this is like the way I feel like attached or loved or safe with you and then isn't it often where we find the anxious and the avoidant partner together and we're like reliving some cycle or played out with different characters
1: and this is the most painful (laughs) dynamic to be in and i've been in it i counsel so many couples who are in it Mm -hmm. and so let's talk about what that what that avoidant style looks like yeah and then we can talk about what happens when those two partner together yeah so the avoidant or the dismissive (laughs) attachment style (laughs) happens when there is a consistent lack of meeting needs. So remember, anxious preoccupied is inconsistent. Sometimes those needs are met, sometimes they're not. Uh In a a parenting style that results in avoidant attachment style, the parent or the caregiver is not emotionally available. And they have a really hard time identifying or responding to the needs of the infant. Oftentimes, because They weren't modeled how to do that themselves. Or maybe they're going through their own intense trauma or uh, major health issues or or the grief of losing their partner or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. There can be situational life factors that can make them feel overwhelmed by parenting and not available. And so when somebody has an avoidant or dismissive attachment style, they have learned to become really self-reliant and independent because they had to do that as a protection mechanism as a kid in fact they've they've almost shut down their attachment system because if mm-hmm. their needs weren't getting met then they just stopped noticing or attuning to the fact that they even had a need they, they mm-hmm. have a fundamental belief that they're nobody's going to meet their needs so they have to meet them on their own wow. and okay. intimacy can feel very threatening and overwhelming and scary oh. because it's requires vulnerability, emotional openness, interdependence, leaning in, and that feels inherently unsafe Dangerous. to somebody who's got an avoidant or dismissive attachment style. And societies actually set up in some ways to amplify this because our society really values people who are self-reliant and autonomous and independent. And so it can very much get internalized as a positive identity. Uh, and there are of course yeah. positive aspects to it but it, it doesn't fun. necessarily value and teach people how to lean in and express their needs in healthy ways that is necessary for intimacy exactly and connect and like helps
0: you feel connected that's right and then what about the other person Hmm. and
1: okay. then as you were pointing to what is not uncommon is for folks who are anxious preoccupied to partner with people who are avoidant and dismissive. And that, as you can really see, would totally exacerbate the challenges that the other one is facing. Because if I'm anxious, preoccupied, I'm going to be leaning in for reassurance, for emotional connection, for emotional expressiveness, for uh, touch, for, for all of these signs and cues that you love me and that you want me and that you're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that can feel incredibly invasive and overwhelming and threatening to somebody who's avoidant yeah. and dismissive. So they pull away because they need space and they need to fail a sense of autonomy and selfhood. And then the pulling away makes the person who is anxious lean in and grasp more. And then the person who's avoidant pulls away more.
0: <laughs> so how, I mean, I know you can conversate and we, you can if you listen to something like this and you go, Oh, okay. And then you start having dialogue about it, but then what do you do once you go, okay, I relate to that. How do I get the tools to navigate this so that it's not like this every time I want to feel validated or I don't always pull away. You have to both be willing, correct? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There's
1: a willingness and an ability. Um, And so I, I think that if you're not partnered, it's really ideal to seek out a partnership with somebody who's got a secure attachment style, because whether you're anxious or avoidant, (laughs) if your partner is secure and you're anxious, they'll be able to offer you the reassurance and the presence and the consistency and and availability that you're looking for. And if you're avoidant, somebody who's secure is going to feel confident enough in their worthiness and in their selfhood and their, and, 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 independence that they can let you take the space that you need and still be an anchor for partnership and connection so that you can get your solo time feel secure on your own and then come back to the relationship and attachment styles are in some parts relative meaning as an anxious person, if I partner with somebody who's more anxious than I am, I'll start to show up as avoidant. Or as an avoidant person, if I partner with somebody who's more avoidant than I am, I might start to show up as anxious. But if I'm a partner with somebody who's secure, I will start to show up more secure.
0: Cool. Okay. Interesting. Why is it oftentimes that an avoidant and an anxiously attached person are drawn to one another? Or is that me just thinking that?
1: No, you're not just thinking that. In some ways, they're trying to complete a trauma cycle. And this is happening unconsciously. Um, And, you know, I think that the anxious person is wanting to gather data and evidence of their lovability. And an anxious person is really good at attuning to the needs of somebody else and prioritizing them. And, 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 and in some ways it's kind of a missing experience for somebody who hasn't had that, who's avoidant or dismissive, who didn't have that growing up. Mm -hmm. And so while on one hand that can feel really overwhelming and threatening and scary, on the other hand, it can be like, oh my God, what is this thing that I've never had before? It feels really, it feels really good and scary and overwhelming at the same time. And then I think that when that avoidant person can show up and, and, and give that glimmer of of connection and reassurance mm-hmm. and presence and attention, then that anxious person is like, "Oh, that was so good. I want more of I it want more. right. And it feeds this dynamic. Yeah. but in the in in the long run, or sometimes even in the short run, uh, neither people are being sufficiently sustained in their needs and and it's very June. often not a not a relationship dynamic that is going to be nourishing sustainable. Yeah, or sustainable. Exactly right.
0: But if you can acknowledge it and then get the help you need can, or two people that are willing to make changes, then it's possible.
1: It is possible. It's going to be the hard, uh, the harder dynamic to, if you're already in an anxious, avoidant relationship dynamic. Yes, get some support, get some coaching, get some therapy. And we could talk about tactics that both parties can do, but it is going to be a harder setup. Uh, and, and I also I mean to imply that if you're... Uh, avoidant or anxious, and you partner with somebody who's secure, poof, no work to be done. Like there's still work that the person who has an insecure attachment style can, and I would say maybe should do so that they can
0: show up for intimacy more fully. Right. Because it's, I don't know, for me, just personally speaking, I feel like being anxiously attached feels it's, I know it's overwhelming. It can be overwhelming for both parties. And I, I, I do feel ashamed sometimes about it, or I do feel icky.
1: Yeah. So I would say that somebody who is anxious or preoccupied has an easier time co-regulating, meaning finding soothing for their nervous system in connection with somebody else. It could be a friend, it could be a family member or your partner. And so talking, cuddling, spending time, engaging activities together are all really soothing. And we all need to have experiences of co-regulation and self-regulation. And so I don't in any way want to say, don't do that. Do that. It works. And also start to gather the capacity to self-soothe and self-regulate. And that could look like engaging in self-care activities. I have a whole self-care menu that I'm happy to provide your listeners. Um, and those could be things like gardening or working out or taking a long bath or listening to music or, you know, just so many different things and not everything is going to work for everybody, but some of those things will work for anyone. And then also more like automatic and in the moment, activities like offering yourself some soothing touch or really checking in with your breath or scanning your body meditation can be so helpful um maybe shaking your body for feeling anxious or doing some self-massage right doing things that help calm your nervous system that's that's part of parenting yourself I also think that it's learning how do you I think somebody who's anxious can get kind of reactive and, and angry outbursts (laughs) (laughs) and sometimes what we call protesting behaviors. Like I'm going to push you away because really what I want for you to do is pull me in closer.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And so I'm noticing these impulses and working to create a gap between the impulse and the action. And Learning ways to express your emotional experience without shaming, guilting, or blaming, and identifying what your needs are in the moment and being able to ask for them and also being able to get your needs met from a wider range of people,
0: I think are all really important skills. Put it all on one person's responsibility. Because what is the difference between being anxiously attached and being codependent?
1: So when we're codependent, you are having two people who are relying on a relationship to the extent that I am so enmeshed with you that I can no longer distinguish the difference between your needs and your feelings and my needs and my feelings, such that if you're feeling anxious, I will automatically feel anxious. Or if you're um, feeling hurt, I'm going to feel hurt. Now, of course, when we're in an attachment bond or when we're empathetic carrying individuals, mm. we're going to be impacted by other people's emotions mm. and we're going to be sensitive to their needs. But we can still distinguish the difference between your experience and my experience.
0: And then with enough practice of secure detachment, is that when you can move on or you see people move on? Because I, what about like living in that narrative of like, staying like i'm anxiously attached so i'm like this and like this and like this and i need you to cater to i need you to be there for me because i'm like this and then they feel one way and want you to be does that that make sense what i'm saying like how can you move on from that or evolve so
1: if you're an anxious attacher you might say to your partner consistent communication helps me feel really safe and secure Um, or having like a regular practice of sharing affirmations and sweet things with each other helps me feel loved, or physical affection and cuddling helps me feel really close to you. And then the partner can say, "Um, great, like, I'm really happy to meet these needs. And sometimes when I'm having a really busy day at work, I'm not going to be able to respond to texts, or when I'm feeling I have some chronic pain and that makes it harder to cuddle or whatever it may be, knowing their own limitations and their own boundaries, yeah. being able to express it and, and oftentimes explaining it so that the anxious person isn't taking it personally. And then it's the on the the anxious attacher to learn how to be with that disappointment and to start to question the internal narrative that draws meaning from those boundaries or lack of capacity that your partner therefore doesn't love you. And it's being able to notice, okay, part of me might feel rejected or feels insecure or unlovable. And can I also just see how often they are able to meet my needs and be present and available for me? And that this might not be about me. It's about their capacity and limitations.
0: That makes sense.
1: So if you are avoidant or dismissive, then Leaning into intimacy and vulnerability and sometimes even touch and a lot of eye contact and all of that can feel deeply overwhelming. Offering a lot of reassurances or attending to somebody else's needs can feel overwhelming. Or feeling like you have you have to be in, dependent upon somebody else or that you don't have control over a situation. And so what I think avoidant folks can do is learn to express their needs for space and express their needs their boundaries and also realize that different people are worth are worthy of different levels of trust that it's not a blanket statement that all people are not trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And to learn how to titrate, intimacy, meaning rather than trying to jump into the deep end of the pool, which would be way too overwhelming and scary and dysregulating, wade into it slowly, where you give little pieces of your experience and see how it's received. I think avoid an anxious, I mean, avoid a dismissive people are really afraid that if they open up about their emotional experience or their needs, they'll be criticized or shamed. And so learning how to do this in small bites and seeing that the other person isn't criticizing you and is available to meet your needs is is helpful. And then also expressing your own needs for space and your own boundaries. And I think that what's important is to say, I need to take a little bit of time right now and I care about you or and I'm going to come back. It's that both and developing that Mm -hmm. I'm going to do what I need to do for me and I care about you and want to show up for you too. What about sex? Like, do you find one has a higher drive? Yeah, when it comes to sex, anxiously uh, attached people can over rely on sex to feel a sense of closeness But they might not actually have the most nourishing sex because they're constantly attending to the other person's needs. Mm -hmm. And they're going to feel more critical about if the other person is enjoying it and if they're doing a good job. That's interesting. And, And if somebody is more of an avoidant attacher, they might feel more inclined to have casual sexual encounters or fewer sexual encounters because sex in and of itself is intimate. And it, it that level of closeness and connection vulnerability that can happen in sex can be really scary and can be a deterrent. And so they might favor having more lovers, more casual lovers, rather than going really deep with any one person. And I think somebody who is avoidantly attached, they might, and maybe this will ring true for some of your listeners or listeners out there, they might start to notice that they focus on little insignificant things, like little annoying habits or things about somebody's appearance. And, mm-hmm. and then they become really big things that are the cause of them breaking up with them. And that's a, I it's it was a, like st- a personality trait. But it's yeah. like, no, you're it, it says more. <laughs> yeah, totally. If you notice that you have that tendency where after some amount of time you just start to get really annoyed by something, and then like that's the reason you can't be with them anymore. That's oftentimes a coping strategy for the intensity of intimacy for somebody really? who is more avoidant and dismissive.
0: Oh my goodness. That's interesting. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Okay. Now what about the, the third one? Or did we not finish yeah. the second?
1: No, I, I think we okay. can talk about the third one. Okay. So somebody who's disorganized or feel-for-avoidant, when they were a little one, their caregiver was unpredictable to a degree that caused fear, meaning that the very same action that the, the baby or little one did sometimes would result in connection and uh, uh, reward and sometimes would be punished and shamed and shunned and and oftentimes it can be associated with abuse and um you know so for example um the mom drops the little one off or the caregiver whoever may be drops the little one off at, at daycare and the little one cries and then the parent's like stop crying i'll give you something to cry about Mm. just get off you know get off me like go there's like this shaming there's this punishment there is and and what happens is, is that for the little one they start to equate love with fear and love with pain and so they actually kind of develop a hybrid where sometimes they'll show up as anxious and sometimes they'll show up as avoidant and they're very inconsistent in the coping mechanisms and strategies that they will be mm-hmm. employing, which can make it very hard for their partner because sometimes they're showing up as avoidant, sometimes they're showing up as anxious and it's it can be hard to know how to respond Keeping to Keeping them that.
0: on their toes. That's what I thought it was called. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. That's interesting. Wow. Okay. This is all blowing my mind. Okay. Keep going. And so somebody
1: who has a a disorganized attachment style, they're going to want to learn the tactics that both anxious and avoidant attachers employ to start to self-soothe and to co-regulate and to name their needs and feelings and boundaries to be able to uh, open up more emotionally, to not act reactively with anger or dismissively with judgment and criticism, and to learn how to start to find safety in attachment and in connections again. And, okay. and oftentimes therapeutic support, skillful coaching support can be really helpful. I think for anybody with an insecure attachment style, but I think particularly with folks who have disorganized attachment styles, because there's that experience of childhood trauma that goes along. with
0: Yeah. It. Yeah. What do you think like our like byproducts of people in these dynamics that don't do anything about it? Like that's when you disconnect and you go apart. Yeah, you... that's
1: when you're finding that you're having a series of relationships that are ending in ways that feel painful and traumatizing. If you're an anxious attacher and you're not getting the support that you need to move through that attachment style, and move towards a more earned secure attachment style, oftentimes you're going to feel like people are constantly leaving you it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy Mm, because mm. the more anxious you get the more inconsolable you get the harder it is for you to be reassured the more you're constantly leaning in and grasping and being hyper vigilant the harder it can be even for a securely attached Mm. person to be present for that and to meet those needs and to and so then they pull away and then you feel like it's confirming this belief that you have that you're not lovable. And for somebody who's got more of an avoidant dismissive style, they might find that they have a series of relationships that are more superficial and that are lacking depth and substance. And oftentimes somebody who's avoidant or dismissive will be really career driven or really focused on having broad networks and broad being the life of the party and having other ways of feeling prestige and feeling validated that doesn't actually encourage them to lean into the intensity of the vulner- of, of vulnerability and, and intimacy, which is important for a deep, emotionally
0: vibrant relationship. Right. Like some people will feel like, like they're missing, like they're missing out, like they need more emotionally. And then another person can feel so satisfied and content. Is, is that a avoided and anxious yeah, or that, that could just... even
1: just be avoidant and, and secure because securely attached people crave intimacy too. They want depth. Mm-hmm. They want to have emotional vulnerability. They want to have interdependence where I share my experience and my feelings and my needs and then you share yours with me and that mm-hmm. there is this relationship that's being created through mutual shared vulnerability. And so if you are um, wanting the other person to open up more, And the other person feels like opening up is scary, then they might pull away and shut down. And then that can feel, it can feel scary for somebody who's anxious and it can feel unfulfilling for somebody who's secure.
0: What about people who feel like they relate to one of the styles, but then where they disconnect is when they think about something they experienced in childhood. Like an avoidant person must be like, I think I was a fine taking care of baby or like, you know what, does that make sense? do you think that it always uh maybe it's something they're unaware of even well
1: because this gets really solidified by 18 months we don't have memory of what our lives were like in the first 18 months Mm -hmm. and i think in a lot of cases there can be different situational factors that impact the environments that we were in at different points of our childhood and so we might have different memories of childhood based on the different time sections that we are thinking about. Mm -hmm. And also it's really hard to think of our parents as lacking skill or lacking capacity or affection and care. Mm -hmm. And we can develop a real protective response around not wanting to throw them under the bus or to, you know, I think, in a lot of ways, right? If I can speak personally, mm-hmm. I was deeply loved and cared for by my parents. They were not able to attune to me or my needs or offer me emotional regulation and soothing, but they loved me dearly and they mm-hmm. always provided for me. And all of my basic needs were met. And I was afforded a fantastic education and um, all these wonderful life opportunities. And it could feel like I am. Crapping on all that, sure, yeah, if I yeah. say that they also were not able to meet some of my fundamental nonverbal mm-hmm. and and maybe it's like a little older verbal needs that I had as a baby. That those things can coexist, and that just because you're acknowledging that your parents weren't able to create a secure attachment style with you, doesn't mean that they didn't love you or that they were completely terrible parents. It just mm-hmm. means all that right. there is this one way that they weren't able to soothe and care and attune and attend to you that had a real impact.
0: I mean, I think about being a mother right now. And then I think about growing up, like I feel the same way. I feel like my mother loved me. I mean, would have given, would have taken a bullet for me, taken her shirt off her back, done anything and everything for me. And they tried to provide, I mean, I would, I grew up privileged. I I was so fortunate, but Emotionally, you know what I mean? There there were needs that where I felt extremely misunderstood, Mm -hmm. extremely invisible, extremely in an adult's world. And like if I'll talk to my husband about these things, and I think that is where sometimes there's a disconnect or disagreement. He feels guilty. Like he's like, We should how we can't blame them. Like we're grown adults and we take responsibility. And it's not that I want to blame anybody. I know they're doing the best they could in that moment. It's just acknowledging that we're products of our environment. And this is where I'm at and how I felt and how it affected me up to this point. That's right. And
1: it's also important to note that parenting styles, the ways in which parents were encouraged to parent Mm-hmm. Shifted, evolved over time, <laughs> and for I think folks yeah. of our generation, when we were little ones, and I think also our parents' generation, when they were little ones, you know the the common discourse was, "Let them cry it out."
0: You don't want to hug. Scared hugger, of you your don't... parents? Like that's be a healthy fear. You should have a healthy fear. I always am thinking, like, how am I like breaking cycles? Things that like I know I needed that I want to make sure I give to my child, but then I can't help but think in my head. I know my child's going to need therapy too from me.
1: And that's, I think, one of the hardest things about being a parent. One of my teachers once said, you know, even if you feed your baby only organic food, they still shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like No matter what, you cannot create a dynamic where there isn't going to be some amount of wounding, some amount right? of missing. It, 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 we hopefully all do better than our the generations that came before us, but also we have limited capacities and we're learning as we go and doing the very best that we can. And yeah. I really want to, again, emphasize the good enough model. Like nobody is going to be attentive to their child's needs 100% of the time. That right. is an unrealistic bar. Yes. And, and I just think it's so easy in our society to shame, particularly mothers, mm-hmm. for not being a good yes. mom and for not doing it perfectly. And that is just such Ugh. toxic... Shit stuff that's so easy to internalize. And it's damaging. It really is damaging. It really Mm. is. And so, you know, I think in some ways, this is why it's actually helpful to do some healing work with your own parents, whether they're capable of changing their behaviors or not, or being a part of the conversation or not, because it helps us actually find that forgiveness and that empathy and compassion and patience for ourselves should we choose to be a parent.
0: We're all human beings and we're going to continue to fuck up, but taking accountability and being able to self-reflect and acknowledge like who we are is really important. And I know I have a lot of couples listening like this. That's what this podcast is about is connecting and intimacy and uncomfortable intimacy. So I was glad to be able to talk about this is real, like real shit affecting everyone. Correct. I don't believe the 60% thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, remember that this is not like a
1: light switch either you're insecurely attached or you're securely attached like these are four distinct buckets and you're in one bucket you're always in one bucket i think it's more helpful to think about these as spectrums people can be more anxiously attached or less anxiously attached or more avoidant or less avoidant and also to remember that it's relative and that it's not, While it definitely gets kind of a, solidified in our first 18 months of life. There are certainly things that we can all do to earn secure attachment as adults. And even I think as we're growing up, if our parents start to learn new ways of attuning and talking about emotions and making space for this stuff, this the, it's not too late, parents out there, if you're like realizing that maybe there are things that you wish you had done differently with your kids when they were infants or, or new or little ones that you can still start to change the ways that you're interacting and the dialogues that you're having
0: at any point in your relationships true that so how did you evolve from anxiously attached would you now identify as a securely attached person
1: i would identify as
0: earned secure Okay, explain that to me.
1: Yeah, meaning that there are always going to be situations and moments where my anxious attachment style is going to show up. yeah. Totally. Um, One thing that my partner and I do that I found really helpful, particularly I think in the first couple years of our relationship when it's just more inherently insecure dynamic when you're in the newness of a relationship, you know – a lot of research suggests that it takes about two years to form a secure attachment with somebody. Even if you have a secure attachment style, it takes time.
0: Yeah, that and makes so sense.
1: My, and my partner, I would say, has earned secure attachment, but is coming from the more avoidant side of the spectrum. And so he needed more space and more solo time and more the reassurances I need was that he wasn't going anywhere, and the reassurances that he need. Needed was I respect his autonomy and his sovereignty and that he's allowed to have boundaries and and that I I can take care of myself and be with my own disappointment if he's not available and so part of that was learning the different kinds of reassurances and the different kinds of needs we each had and how we can meet them but then we would also play with it somatically so and we still sometimes do this when we're recovering from a conflict or something as I will have him hold me really tightly and I'll push on his chest and kind of try to push him away and he'll hold me Uh so tightly so that I can't push him away. And it's physicalizing the internal uh, emotional challenge that is being held there and and those protest strategies of, I'm going to push you away as hard as I can, but oh, uh, you're not going to let me go and you still love me and you're still here. You're still holding me.
0: Submitting to the hold almost. Right?
1: Or when we were in our early dating life and he would go and I would feel my anxiety come up around, Mm -hmm. like, it's always helpful, by the way, to have the future plan as an anxious attacher. If I knew when I would see him next, that was reassuring. But even still, like if it was going to be a few days or a week, or sometimes let's be honest, a few days that I wasn't Mm going to see him, I would feel a lot of anxiety. And so we would play with it where, um, he would stand and I would sit around his foot and hold his calf Mm -hmm. and I would squeeze his calves and I would say, don't go, don't go. And he would like slowly move to the door (laughs) and I would just cling onto his leg. We just played with it. And, And we were able to talk openly about it. He was able not to shame me for having these feelings. I didn't shame him for needing more space and autonomy. And we could play with it and physicalize it. And that was so helpful and de-shamifying. I think it's really helpful to learn how to self-soothe. It's really helpful to learn how to co-regulate, to be able to name your emotional experience, to identify your needs, to identify and share your boundaries to learn how to not respond reactively and impulsively. And this is all work that I do with my couples and with my individual clients. You don't need, need to be in a relationship to work on your attachment style. And mm-hmm. I offer a lot of courses and workshops that Help give you the skills that are important for healthy attachment and intimacy. And in fact, in January, I have an eight week course called Sexual and Emotional Intimacy Skills, which is also a course I teach at Stanford University. And I love taking it out of academia and offering it to the wider public. And it's online. So folks across the world can take it. And the classes are recorded. And I sell the recordings when the class isn't live. So even if you're listening to this and April or whatever time of year, reach out to me at turnon.love, that these are essential skills that we need to have healthy intimacy, to have secure attachment bonds. And then individualized attention and support, that hand-holding, that mirroring and reflecting, that templating and instruction is so vital intimacy is a skill like any skill we can get better at it with proper instruction and practice and right here what we're talking about is the fact that you did not get that templating that proper instruction and practice as a kid how can you seek it out as an adult
0: awesome so helpful i need that shit okay well i'm gonna put the link it's turn on dot love correct that's right and i i
1: have a, a promo code horny housewife will Ooh. give all of your listeners $100 off on my upcoming sexual and emotional intimacy skills course.
0: Okay, awesome. I will put that link in the episode notes to make it very easy for everyone. Thank you, Dr. Ali, for joining us again. This was awesome. I loved being on your
1: show and I, I hope to come back again. You're just so fun to talk with.
0: Hope y'all enjoyed that as much as I did. Again, that was Dr. Allison Ash, and those links will be in the episode notes along with all the other things and links we talked about earlier. I will see y'all next Monday.